comedian Grace Mulvey. And pop culture obsessive Neve King. Ask the question, what makes a great adaptation? We take a beloved book that has been made into a movie or TV show and do a deep dive into what the production got right or very wrong. From banger soundtracks to dodgy casting, we get into what it takes to make the jump from page to screen. Welcome to The Jump. Hello and welcome to this episode of The Jump, where we are going to reminisce about childhood innocence and the general malaise of teenagehood. So if you're asking yourself, what's so bad about being a teenager? At that age, you're not even old enough to know how bad life gets. Well, my response to you is this. You've never been a 13-year-old girl. (laughs) This episode is all about the novel and film adaptation of The Virgin Suicides, where we ask the question, Is there anything more tragically cool than a mysterious blonde, long-haired teenager? Is there, Neef? Oh my God, no. (laughs) You're so right. There's just something about being a blonde teenager. I'm like, sorry, you're God's (laughs) favourite. It's so true, though. You're God's chosen. Yeah, absolutely. And like that kind of long hair that just lands perfectly. Do you know what I mean? Bell-bottom jeans. Like, what are you talking? Are you joking? A real callback to Rachel Morin from the Normal People episodes, who (laughs) we are furious at all the time. Exactly. So this, yeah, we're going to talk about the virgin suicides today. I just want to say, right, I'm going to straight away, I just want to call Neve out on something. I'm so angry you decided, (laughs) you asked to do this. I've... Never read it before, yeah. never seen it before, never seen the film. <laughs> Didn't know anything about it. Actually, my life was much happier because of it. So then I had to dive into this world where I was like, what is going on? I hate this. I hate every second of it. <laughs> but I, did, did you actually, did you hate it? I, I hate it. Really? Okay, so, okay. I know hate is a strong word and yet I stand by it. No, I really, wow. um, I, listen, watching the film and the book, like there are obviously great parts about yeah. it and stuff. I just don't know if I was in the mood to read this and to watch it. And genuinely, it, it's like every step, it was like a bit of a battle. Yeah. And again, not because it's not a great piece of literature or a great piece of film. I just, it, you have to be in a certain mood for this film. Okay, <laughs> or like, I, you know. I just say, in my defence... <laughs> We were between two for yes, this episode yeah. and the other one was Cormac McCarthy's The Road. Mm-hmm. And do you know anything about that? <laughs> no. It would not have been much better. <laughs> it's literally about a man trying to keep his son alive in a barren wasteland while they're being chased by cannibals. Okay, well, you know what? <laughs> I still think a bit more of a vibe than this. <laughs> no, I, I know I'm saying that. I, I genuinely, it was just one of those books where, again, I had to read it within a week and watch the film. Sometimes you do feel like you're stuck in this world if you're yeah. constantly reading about it. I actually weirdly then going into the research of why the guy wrote it was like, okay, well now I kind of like it a bit more. (laughs) But the experience of reading it was tough. Okay. So The Virgin Suicides um, was the debut novel by American author Jeffrey, and I'm going to butcher the second name again. Do you know know how to say a second name? Uh, You give it a shot. (laughs) Eugenides? There you go. (laughs) Eugenides. Eugenides. Yeah, I believe it's Greek. 
It is. He's half Greek, half half Irish. Um, Half Irish, we like to call it out every time we can. (laughs) Um, So Jeffrey Eugenides, um, it was published in 1993, right? So the story um, is set in Michigan during the 1970s and centres around the lives of five doomed sisters the Lisbon Girls. The novel was is written in first person plural from the perspective of an anonymous group of teenage boys who struggle to find an explanation of the Lisbon Girls' deaths. I'll go, I'm going to go to the plot. I have to read it out. I'm going to try my best to make this as fun and frothy as we can. <laughs> Again, a trigger warning. This does cover a lot of suicide and death. Yeah. Um, you know, we're not really talking about that as much as we are just talking about this story. So, um, listen, I'm going to give it my best shot here, okay? So, the, I just want to say this is the opening line of the book. And I nearly wanted to ring Neve and be like, how dare you? <laughs> the opening line was, on the morning the last Lisbon sister took her turn at suicide, it was Mary this time, and sleeping pills like Therese. What? <laughs> I literally finished that sentence and went, are you joking? Sorry, but Grace, she didn't ring me, but she did text me. And I think you were like, is this actually about suicide? <laughs> I thought it was the, the, I thought the title meant something else. Like it does. Sorry, I thought the title was on. like, I don't know, maybe your about your first time. Okay. <laughs> so that's the beginning um, of the book. An ambulance arrives for the body of Mary Lisbon, the last Lisbon sister to die. And um, a group of uh, anonymous adolescent neighbourhood boys recall the events leading up to her death. So that's how the story goes. Now, the Lisbons are a Catholic family living in the suburbs of Michigan during the 1970s. The father, Ronald Lisbon, is a math teacher at the local high school. The mother is a strict homemaker. The family have five blonde teenage daughters, 13-year-old Cecilia, 14-year-old Lux, 15-year-old Bonnie, 16-year-old Mary and 17-year-old Therese. That's some Catholic lovemaking, by the way, right there. Um, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, boom, boom, boom. And then they never touched each other again. Um, without warning, one day, the youngest sister, Cecilia, attempts suicide by slitting her wrists. She survives, and a psychologist rem- rem- recommends to her parents that the girls need more social interaction. Basically, the psychologist thinks that the potential cause of Cecilia's suicide attempt was the suppression of her libidinial libidineal urges, a.k.a. he thought she was a bit horny. Now listen, (laughs) yes, the psychologist was a man. The parents then throw a chaperone party at their house for the girls and invite the anonymous group of teenage boys over who narrate the book. Um, At this party, tragedy strikes again as Cecilia excuses herself, goes upstairs and jumps out of her bedroom window and dies almost immediately. Following this, the Lisbon parents, particularly Mrs. Lisbon, further isolate their daughters from the community. And Cecilia's death heightens the air of mystery around the Lisbon girls, uh, which leads the neighbourhood boys to become kind of more obsessed with them. Mm-hmm. Lux begins a secret romance with local heartthrob and all-round ride, Trip Fontaine. <laughs> <laughs> listen, listen. All-round ride, what can you do? <laughs> Trip's got it going on. Trip manages to get the Lisbon parents to allow him to take Lux to the homecoming dance on the condition that he finds dates for the other three sisters. So all the sisters go together. At the at the homecoming dance, uh, Trip's Trip persuades Lux to ditch their group to have sex on the school's football field. Afterwards, Trip abandons Lux, who falls asleep and misses her curfew. Due to this break of curfew, Mrs. Lisbon withdraws the girls from school and keeps them at home in what the boys describe as a maximum security isolation. Mr. Lisbon is also fired from his teaching job over concerns from the parents of the other students. So at this point, 
kind of all of the girls are not seen anymore. Not even like Mrs. Lisbon and Mr. Lisbon are pretty much, they're all kind of in hibernation in this house that's further deteriorating. The house mm-hmm. is just going to shit. Um, the only time Lux is seen is by, by the anonymous teen boys is having sex on the roof um, of the Lisbon residence with unnamed and unknown men at night. The tight-knit community gossip and watch as the Lisbon's lives deteriorate, but without intervention. This is the time of their life they've basically spent entirely indoors. After many months of strict confinement, the remaining four sisters reach out to the boys using light signals and sending anonymous letters. This leads to one night the girls sending a message to the boys to come over at midnight, leading the boys to believe that they will help the girls escape. Upon entering the house, they meet Lux, who invites them inside and tells them to wait for her sisters while she goes to start the car. As the boys wait, they explore the house and basically discover that all of the sisters have died. For for the girls, um, had apparently made a suicide pact. Bonnie had hanged herself, Therese overdosed with sleeping pills, and Lux died of carbon monoxide poisoning. Uh, Mary, who had put her head in the gas oven, survives the attempt and lives for another month, but she does finally success uh, succeed in ending her life by overdosing on sleeping pills. Immediately, the adults in the community go on as if nothing has happened. Basically, the novel ends with Mr. and Mrs. Lisbon leaving Gross Point, um, Michigan, eventually divorcing. But the novel really closes on now the grown men confessing mm. that they had loved the girls but never truly understood them and that they will never understand the true motives behind the suicides. Wow. Well done. Okay. That was amazing. Listen, yeah. I don't pat myself in the back much. <laughs> <laughs> but getting through that and trying to add a little pizzazz every once in a while. We'll see how- the story we're dealing yeah, with here. Yeah, that was a fantastic yeah. round. But I feel the whole time I was just kind of quietly like, you know, like a little <laughs> mouse just sitting listening to you. Um, yeah, very well surmised, Grace. Thank you. <laughs> the book itself, right, I just want to give a little background on the author, right? So I'm just going to call him by his first name. Uh, Jeffrey has written numerous short stories and essays but The Virgin Suicide was his first novel, which is inc- incredible, yeah. okay? Followed by Middlesex um, in 2002 and The Marriage Plot in 2011. Um, Middlesex, by the way, went on to receive the 2003 Pulitzer Prize for fiction, but I, it's only been The Virgin Suicides that's ever been cha- like made into a film. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about the inspiration behind the plot of the book, because yeah. the more I understood where this story came from, I kind of made me understand the story a bit more because I think it can be quite a frustrating read at times. So Jeffrey said he was visiting um, with his nephew and his nephew's teenage babysitter told him that she and her sisters had planned at one point to commit suicide. Oh my God. Yeah. When Jeffrey asked why, the babysitter only replied, we were under a lot of pressure. Basically he said in an interview, she couldn't actually tell him why. Yeah. And what age was he at this point? Do you know or... I actually have no idea, yeah. yeah. But he was like an ad, like a full adult, like wow. he was going back to visit family. Um, there's a great, by the way, um, interview with him in the Paris Review, we'll put it in the show notes, because he just does kind of talk about it, like, because he, he said he was actually on a cruise down the Nile when he first was like pondering <laughs> this. He just sort of said, like, they, talking to this teenage girl, he just was like thinking about it and going like, what? Like, what yeah, there? like the fact that you can't even tell me why yeah. made him just ponder this and then go like, okay, is there even a reason? Can it even be explained? But what if it actually did happen? And then yeah. he sort of went down this top. But he was on the Nile when he wrote the first sentence and came up with the idea of the plural point of view. So the plural point of view, and this is probably why I found the book difficult okay. to read, right? Yeah. It is from the point of view of these random group of boys who kind of don't even have names. Like, you know, you don't know kind of who's talking at what point yeah. talking about the girls. And I think that's what I found more frustrating because I'm like, I actually am just more fascinated by, by the girls. Like, mm-hmm. I want to be in the girls' heads. 
But I suppose for this writer, he was like, I can't get into these girls' heads. So yeah. actually, I'm going to be more the point of view of the outside. And I, I found that just a really frustrating read. Interesting. I couldn't. There was just long, rambly thing, And I'm just yeah. like, I'd just rather hear from Lux or I'd rather hear from Mary or I'd rather hear from someone else or even Mr. and Mrs. Lisbon. Like, the thing is, the characters are so interesting. Yeah. He's created really great characters. I just, maybe it was the point of view I just couldn't get into. But I understand why this man wrote that point of, course, of view. Of course, yeah. Because actually that, him trying to write as a teenage girl, I don't think I, you know, yeah, it's going to be good. I always think of it. So I had read, <laughs> I'd both seen and, and read the book. I read the book years ago, probably when I was a teenager and have seen the film. Yeah, I think as a teenager, yeah. I, I really loved both. And I think that he does a really amazing job for a grown man writing yeah. about these girls. I think that it's like really well done. And I think that he respects them quite a lot, you know, and yeah. respects. Um, but you're right. I think that the, so in some of the research I did, the boys are often referred to, not in the book, but you know, I've seen in interviews or articles as like a Greek chorus. Yeah. And there is this kind of amalgamous, you don't know uh, who is who. Yeah, it could yeah, be yeah. any of them speaking yeah. at any one time. And it's really about them. The book is about them in a weird way. In about isn't the boys. It? Yeah. yeah. Well, it's, it's about how they the can never let go of this. Yeah. yeah. And it's about like them trying to understand something they'll never understand and yeah. the impenetrability of a teenage girl's yeah. mind, you know? Yeah. So, but I do understand exactly what you're saying that it is hard to access through that point. Uh, yeah. I think it's, do you know, maybe it's my TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> that needs constant satisfaction and entertainment at all times. That a sort of winding book like this, I do call it kind of a, and that's why that's it why totally I think is, Sophie yeah. Coppola taking the film makes sense because she's sort of a winding yes. filmmaker. Just didn't do it for me, and yeah. I and again, I don't think that that makes the book not great or not like I just don't know if that type of writing captures me that well and I genuinely do blame TikTok for it. Now <laughs> I just want to one other thing um, about his this style of writing okay Jeffrey also said like what's so funny about in the interview with the Paris Review is I I never listen to authors talk about their work like this Mm. he's actually very really good at talking and I think he's just like very honest about like writing and how he finds it really tough and all this he said this book kind of just almost fell out of him like Mm -hmm. it was very easy to write for him but he really but he also can't almost describe why mm. like he's like just this idea captured me and that was it but he's like I, I don't think he can explain why the girls do what they do because that's yeah. not really what the book's about and then he was basically talking about what it's really about is he grew up in Detroit and when he was growing up in Detroit there was just Detroit was falling apart yeah. the riots depopulation um there was buildings left in disrepair just mm-hmm. falling around him. He said, I think it was his granddad's bar that was um, was set on fire like during a riot and stuff like that. So he was just talking about that. And their disappearance haunts the narrator and he was like, that's kind of how I feel about Detroit. Wow. I can't get the Detroit back and I keep thinking about it. Yeah. And he's like, that's what it's links to. And I was like, oh, and again, that made me like the story yeah. more. It was almost hearing that that I was like, oh, now I, I'm like, will I go back and reread it? I won't, but would I? <laughs> and just with those eyes. Yeah. <laughs> but... Yeah, and then he said, what a very funny about this, The Virgin Suicide's title, right? He goes, The Virgin Suicide's title. He's like, I just think it's your first book. No one knows you. You need something snappy. <laughs> like, I'm paraphrasing here, but I love that. I, I love, love that. this guy. <laughs> <laughs> it really, genuinely, if you watch the interview, I love it. And then one last thing about the, his writing style. Mm-hmm. 
Um, he remarked in an interview with the Paris Review because he teaches creative writing now. He says, I tell my students that when you write, you should pretend you're writing the best letter you ever wrote to your smartest friend you have. That way you'll never dumb things down. You won't have to explain things that don't need explaining. You'll assume an intimacy and a natural shorthand, which is good because readers are smart and don't wish to be condescended to. I think about the reader. I care about the reader, not the audience, not the readership, just the reader. Oh, wow. Yeah. Now, I'm going to say this. I kind of do wish he dumbed things down again. (laughs) (laughs) This reader (laughs) is not that smart. This reader needed a bit more explained to them. And again, I blame TikTok. (laughs) Um, But yeah, that's the book for me. I obviously didn't, I wouldn't say enjoyed it, but I respect it. Yeah, Yeah. which fair enough. I think that's a totally reasonable response to have to a yeah. piece of literature. Yeah. That's great. And this guy, like, Jeffrey Eugenides sounds like just such a fascinating guy. I've never read Middlesex, actually. I was aware of it, but I never read it, so I might um, go back and revisit. It um, was also awarded a prize at the Dublin International Literacy Festival. Which, so, um, the highest literary yeah. award. I mean, he's half Irish, so <laughs> that half of me really respects him. <laughs> um, yeah, so when we, I'm going to talk about the movie... Uh, mm-hmm. this episode and when I was approaching it I, I'm a little bit different to you in that I love the version suicides I love the book and mm-hmm. I love the movie I was struggling a little bit in my approach to how to talk about it this episode because I felt like we're coming to the end of of this series of The Jump this is um, our, one of our last episodes and I feel like a lot of the material that we've covered we've said you know it's very similar to the book it's yeah. very similar to the source material and this movie isn't an exception. It's very similar mm-hmm. to the book. The beats are all the same. Yeah. The the plot line is very similar and it feels the same. Yeah. You know, it really is yes. like, it yeah. feels like, it's like, I feel like I could reach out and touch it and like yeah. get the same kind of feeling. And, but I think that that's really a remarkable achievement, you know, yeah. for, for a movie to be able to do and a first time filmmaker. And that first time filmmaker is... Sophia, Sophia Coppola. Coppola. I mean, are you joking? You know when you are just like, I want to smack her. Like, <laughs> like for that to be your first, your first film and it's that good. Because it's like, again, I don't, like it's not something that I feel I'd ever go back to, but I yeah. watched it. I'm like, this is beautiful to watch. It's and it beautiful. does get that whole teenage girl thing. Like I was like, again, I could feel it. I could touch it. Yeah. The malaise of it, the whole like windingness of it. The boredom of teenager, yeah. of being a teenager as well, like those long days. She just, I don't know how she does it. Yeah. Well, I don't know if anything I'm about to tell you about Sofia Coppola is going to make you feel better or worse. Well, let's (laughs) dive in. So, um... I'm like, what, does she have any connections in the film industry? (laughs) Imagine I was like, why is she, like, why did, how did she get into this at such a young age? (laughs) So, the film, Sofia Coppola adapted The Virgin Suicide. It was made in 1999. It was written and directed by Coppola and co-produced by her father, Francis Ford Coppola. It debuted in Cannes the same year that it was produced. There, when we usually obviously try and give a bit of background to how the film was made, if there was any kind of like, you know, struggle yeah. making it, I will say it was very easy <laughs> for her to make this. <laughs> like, in all of yeah. my research, everything was like, you know, uh, Kathleen Turner was a friend of my dad, so I asked her to help. And this guy has. She's a producer, isn't she? she she's Mrs. Lisbon. Yes. Um, oh, yes. This sorry, guy sorry, was yeah. like my dad's editor for years, so he edited the film. You know, it yeah. is, that is true. Um, she is 
the ultimate Nepo baby, I think. Yeah. But she's the exception in a way that proves the rule because she is incredibly talented. No, I'm so she good is. at what she does. Yeah. And um, also, I will say, I'm happy she made this film because you. I want a young woman to make this film. Absolutely. And unfortunately, how many young women get the access? Like, they don't. Yeah. Like, so yeah, it almost took her in these circumstances or else it was going to be Francis Ford Coppola doing it like that. <laughs> and I don't mean that he can't. I'm just happy that this version exists. Exactly. Because she gets it like exactly yeah. um, Coppola loved the book and was immediately interested in adapting it the rights to the novel were taken at the time so she actually mm. did something that everyone recommends you do not do which is that she wrote a script anyway even right. though it was completely unlikely that she would get the rights um, she wrote it as a kind of personal exercise just because the book you know really struck a chord with her and she essentially said when she read it I saw so clearly how it had to be done. I immediately saw the central story as being about what distance and time and memory do to you and about the extraordinary power of the unfathomable. It's about the big themes in life, about mortality and obsession and love. Mm. So she feels like she got it straight away and knew exactly what it should be and she could see it straight away. And crucially, the person who had the rights and was writing a screenplay was a man. And she felt... Very, and I, I think that she had heard that it was kind of like a dark adaptation. It was a dark interpretation of yeah. what happened, and she kind of felt like that's not it. Yeah. That is not the book, and that is not what the movie should be. So she wrote the, she finished the screenplay, and the rights had actually lapsed before anything was made. So she was able to start shopping the script around, and it was right. picked up. Um, I wonder who was writing it. I, I know. I'd love to know. Love I'm to sure know. I could find out, but yeah, <laughs> maybe I'll do a little. Uh, if it's Martin Scorsese, I swear to God. <laughs> So I think that Sophia Coppola, as we were saying, is such the perfect person mm. to to do this movie and to have adapted the script. And I actually just want to spend some time talking about her yeah. before we get in, you know, get get into the guts of the movie. Um before she started directing, she had tried acting. She didn't like it. Her whole family worked in the movie business. It wasn't just Francis Ford Coppola. Yeah. Her dad, her her brother, her cousins, uncles. Yeah. They all worked in the movie industry and she very strongly felt that that's not what she wanted. So in the 90s, uh, she started a fashion line, Milk Fed. Stop. Yeah, have you heard of this? No. Yeah, so she started a fashion line called Milk Fed. Very 90s it girl oh, right. fashion line. Very unsurprising. <laughs> and was also deeply interested in photography. So she was actually going to college studying photography yeah. and, and it was a very important hobby for her. So immediately even if it wasn't straight away into filmmaking, her interests were very aesthetic and visual. Yeah, very visually motivated, which I find really interesting. And it wasn't until she read The Virgin Suicides that she decided she wanted to be a director. So this is actually the book that made her want to direct, which I find fascinating. That is great. I will also say, I think what turned her off acting was the response to her (laughs) acting in The Godfather 3. Like, let's not glaze over it. If we want to get a bunch of trolls on this, <laughs> if I want to be harassed on Reddit, I can go up and say, Sophia Coppola was fantastic in The Godfather 3 and you will have responses, <laughs> like just threads of men so angry. Like, I actually haven't seen Godfather 3, but I just know that like she was, I think, I think there was an actress that dropped out quite late. She was last and minute. And she was last minute. And I haven't seen it, so I don't know. But like, I just know that like, you know the response to that so I'd imagine she got burnt as well like because yeah, that's a very she, she was public yeah. yeah it's a very public way of getting bashed yeah. but in it as well like you're talking about a trilogy where it's so beloved but the third film was absolutely 
despised like so to be part of that fair play to her for even going back into filmmaking because I'm sorry if at a young age I was publicly like trounced for something I don't know if I'd totally. want to ever go back to it yeah and like I think she had a death scene was what was her big scene in yeah. The Godfather 3 that's incredibly difficult yeah. like, um, not just a death scene but like a murdered on the yeah. steps like crazy um, so yeah it was the virgin suicides that drew her back into you know, wanting to get involved in filmmaking, wanting to be in that industry, because like I said, she could picture it so clearly. She just had the film in her head. And a lot of criticism aimed at Sofia Coppola is that like her films are aesthetically beautiful, but not that deep. Mm. I completely disagree. Obviously, I think that they're both. And the reason that people feel that way is that they're aesthetically very beautiful. They're really about style in a lot of ways, but they're also mostly about women. And people don't like that combo because Wes Anderson is one of the most celebrated directors in the world and his films are so embedded in like style and how the film is made. They look like a Mr. Kipling book. He looks like Mr. Kipling. He looks like Mr. Kipling. I wouldn't be surprised if that man was like the Willy Wonka, like in terms like he's Mr. Kipling. And he just decided to make some films. You're so right. Um, So what I, I wanted to know, since this is her first film and it did become like, it is a marker of her mm, style. Mm. So it's, she started out exactly almost how she continues. She did obviously grow and she yeah. continues to grow and uh, in her in her style and the way she makes movies, but she started off completely herself yeah. and so feminine in the way that she reacted to movies. And she did say, my dad, Francis Ford Coppola, was a macho filmmaker and his friends were all of that ilk. So I think I really clung to femininity and that kind of girly aesthetic, oh, which I love. I love that. I, love that. <laughs> I just love that because as well, like, I again I just feel like there is a listen I, I'm putting nepotism aside like I you know yeah. I don't think anyone was going to say that like if she wasn't if her dad wasn't who he was and her family were she wouldn't have been able to make this film at yeah. this time maybe a few years later maybe it might have taken years but in order to have such bra- like to be so brave to be the kid of someone yes. who's renowned in this industry and then to go against the type that he is. Yeah. Like you're like, yeah, I'm not going to make a gangster film. In fact, I'm going to make something that looks beautiful and is so feminine. Like it's, that is bravery. Like that's a vision and like to stick behind it. Absolutely. Also, I wonder like maybe that's, I suppose like one thing I would never talk about when you're talking about creativity is that if you grow up in a creative family, maybe risk taking is promote like is sort of you know that kind of thing encouraged. of like having your own vision like is encouraged. So I think there's something about that where I'm like part of it is privilege, the privilege of having a background that you have, but also yeah, you're going out on your own and and keep, she kept her second name. Like yeah. let's be honest, like she could have been Sophia Cage because I don't think people realize that Nicholas Cage is her like cousin. <laughs> and <laughs> I know? think for the most part, the people gen- generally feel about like you know, Nepo babies yeah. or people who come from these very successful backgrounds. I don't care at all as long as you are uh, good. Are, oh, are, yeah, admit yeah, yeah, to yeah. It, Not admit to it, but like own it. Be like, yeah, yeah this is yeah. where I come from. It was easy. It was a little bit easier for me because of this. Yeah. As long as you say that, I'm totally fine because the work you're producing is fantastic. Yeah. So it's not about that you don't deserve to be there. Just be a little bit honest yeah, about how, yeah. how you got there. Um. So when she talks about making The Virgin Suicides, a recurring theme is obviously taking the entire interiority of teenage girls seriously. Yeah. And once again, a recurring theme in her films, her subsequent films. A lot of the movies that were coming about out around this time, this surprised me so much. They don't even seem or feel in the same, you know, era as The Virgin Suicides, but they all came out in the same year. 
American Pie. Stop. American Pie. <laughs> imagine you went for a double billing. Like imagine <laughs> you were like, do you know what I'm going to do a little Oppenheimer Barbie situation. I'm going to go, because they're both about teens, they must be the same film. I'll go see the Amer- American Pie and I'll go see the version Suicide. You would, I... <laughs> I don't know if I'd be able to make it. I, I genuinely don't know what I think. I think I'd come out to the world and I'd be like, I think I'm a different person. Like, I think I'm two personalities now because I'm split down the middle. That is insane. American Pie, she's all that. <laughs> which, like, once again, I love. I love. And a third, which is genuinely, I think, one of the best teen movies of all time, 10 Things I Hate About You. Oh, I mean, listen, now that's... And, and a fabulous adaptation. Yeah, <laughs> that would be a nice double billing now. Version yes. Suicides for dinner and then 10 Things I Hate About You for dessert. Exactly. There you go. Yeah. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about the kind of teen movies that were around at the time. And she talks specifically about those movies were cast with people in their 30s, yeah. 20s, yeah. you know, playing these teenage these teenagers. And it wasn't about their you know, their hopes or their interiority or their dream. It was about, you know, very surface level stuff. It was about sex. All it was of it's about, about like, one guy literally sticks his penis in a pie. Like, I don't know how else you can... <laughs> There's no getting around that. There's no getting around that. So she wanted to do, obviously, something different and, you know, respect the experience yeah. of being a teenage girl. And obviously, as she has said, I was one. So very yeah, easy in that way yeah. to approach it. So turning to the film itself... Like I said, I struggled a little bit to approach about how to talk about it because it is so similar to the book, but there is something so rich about the film in particular. And when she was adapting it, I think that she had kind of a different intention maybe than the book did. And I'd love to know what you think because you felt so strongly about the book. Yeah, I think the book is a little bit more about the mystery a little bit yeah. of why they did what yeah. they did. And we have the boys and they refer to kind of like the things that they saved over the years as their exhibits. Mm-hmm. You know, they have exhibit one to 97 about the Lisbon yeah. girls to try and understand them. They interview people. You know, they go back and interview yes, people. It's, they get they meet Mr. Miss, Mrs. Lisbon anyway after yeah. the deaths again, which to me actually felt a bit... In the film, I'm like, oh, I'm happy they didn't do that. Because yeah. I it wouldn't have felt right for that character. That character would never have done an interview. Like, it's yes. weird, isn't it? Yeah yeah, 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 absolutely. Whereas I think what Coppola wanted to do was make a film about girlhood and adolescence and did not want the audience to be too distracted about the why. Because yeah. it's not about the why. You no. know, it's about the experience of, of being a teenager, both like male and female I think so some things were left out of the adaptation I think very deliberately one um, Lux is hospitalised at one point in the novel oh and I she, totally forgot about this and she isn't in the film yeah um, she she thinks that she might be pregnant because she's been sleeping with people yes. she isn't in the end but it's the only way for her to get out of the house in the book the, there was a school therapist Yes. At one point, the yeah. boys wish they could have spoken to because it seems like the girls... Um, and they, she left very quickly And as she well. left yeah. very quickly. And, you know, that's... Uh, it's a small thing, but it's left out of the out of the movie as well. And then in the book, there is the suggestion that the girls were maybe being more abused than we think. There's a suggestion that they're starving. You yeah. know, they stop getting deliveries yeah. of food and everything. So in, in the book, I think there's a greater you know, hint of abuse. Mm. I'm about to ask actually, in the book, I know very vividly that when Lux breaks curfew um, after getting the ride in the field, she comes back and does Mrs. Lisbon hit her? 
it's it's because it's, it's witnessed implied. by it's witnessed yeah. by a neighbor who says that she goes to hit her, right. realizes that they're on show, that the front and door doesn't. is open, and then just grabs her and brings her inside. In the film, she roughly grabs her and drags yeah, her inside. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I was wondering. And yeah. it's interesting because like Mr. Lisbon is a character that I feel a lot of sympathy for. He's just a bit of a, a sad Which fact. I have to say, James Woods plays very well oh, in this film. They're both, they both look drained of colour, those parents, oh, don't they? They look, like, they look like a monster and Buffy has sucked the life out of them. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm re-watching Buffy. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, he's he's kind of sympathetically yeah. saying, oh, looks, and then the mom comes and grabs yeah. her. And once again, they're all small things, but the... The theme, I think, that, that's being left out is like, what is happening to these girls? You know, what's going yeah. on and what are they thinking? And I think that's not exactly the conversation that she was hoping to reach with the movie. One interesting thing that she said that really sums up the adaptation for me is the film is not set in the 70s. It's set in a memory of the 70s. <gasps> Shut the front door. Isn't that so good? How dare you, Sophia? <laughs> <laughs> Miss Coppola, how dare you? So, yeah, for me, what the film is about a little bit more than in the book is, or, or, or what I think the film really makes clear, is that the past is a foreign country, as the saying goes. You can yeah. never go back there. And the passage of time um, is a gift that a lot of yeah. us don't get and that a lot of us get lost. And like those boys have never been able to get over yeah. what happened to them. Um, my, What's the thing is they rather live in the dream than with their wives. Yeah. Now that's paraphrasing a quote from the book, but that's it. They can never, they are getting to the point in the book, now this is described that their head is balding and they're getting soft bellied and they just can't get past this, um, what happened. Yeah. And I think there's something about some people do get stuck in their teenage lives, don't they? Absolutely. Where like that was the best time. It's like, well, was it? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think, for I think we're all just yeah, for, for, for those long haired girls. For the blondes <laughs> who killed themselves. That's not a great point. <laughs> but what I mean is that like, it's that thing of like, it's like a, and that's what the film does. It's almost like this hue that's around the film, the colour of the film. Exactly. And that's the memories that we have of teenagers sometimes is this weird hue around it yeah. where we just forget. Also the extreme emotions we had at that time. Absolutely. We totally forget that. Yeah. And that's what those, you know what I mean? Like those and highs and those everything lows. felt. Yeah. And, yeah, I, w I was watching it and my partner was kind of in, also in the room and half watching it. We had watched it quite recently, actually. Yeah. That's why it was in my head for us to do it. So my partner was in the room and it was also on and You're it sadistic. finished. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Go on. And I kind of turned to him and said, like, like, why do you think that they were so obsessed with them yeah. or still so obsessed? And he very simply said, like, imagine that happened across the road from you. Oh. Would you ever get over that? And I was like, God, no, you're right. Marry that man. That's actually so true. No, it's so it's true. So true. And I'd never even yeah. thought about it that way because it is kind of a point of conversation about why the boys are so obsessed and why they can't move on. Yeah. And I think if the girls had lived, they would have moved on because the girls would have grown up yeah. and become real. Yeah. And now they'll never be real because they're gone. Oh. Um, and that's why I think, yeah, that the approach of making the movie as a memory and as an ode to memory yeah. and as an ode to the passage of time, I think is so, so perfect. And why I think that she was so, such a perfect person yeah. to make this. Um, so there are a few things that I want to talk about in terms of how, and like you said, that kind of how they made the film feel this way and, and that kind of haze that surrounds it, which I just think is so gorgeous. The first is the score and the soundtrack, because I 
don't know about you, but like I have been humming the score since I watched it. Um, I cannot for the life of me remember that score. <laughs> I'll, hum, I'll hum it for you. Um, so the score and the soundtrack were produced by French electronic duo Air. Uh, they Sophia was inspired by their music while writing due to the very dreamy quality of their compositions. Can I just say like sometimes, <laughs> like I have to say, right, sometimes I hear the words like French dreamy electronic and I'm like... <laughs> Like Sophia is a person. Sophia Coppola just seems like a person who lives in a Polaroid. And <laughs> oh, you're so accurate. And it just, it just, I am not that person. <laughs> I live in a boomerang. Okay. So and she accurate. lives in a Polaroid. And sometimes I'm like, how does one even come across? French electronic whatever and like it's just that thing like these things are said and I am like yeah fair play but this is almost like a bit of a Wes Anderson thing about it where you're like you know like he rode in on a bike of antique tuba parts like you know what I mean that joke from thing it is that thing where I'm like this is sometimes I have to roll my eyes a little bit but I totally get it well Grace I actually have to tell you because I do know how she discovered air and it's going to reinforce your opinion you know how I discovered air I breathe (laughs) she was in London in a record shop, Rough Trade, which I know is off Brick Lane because it's where Gas. I used to live. And it was while she was writing the film, she was literally flipping through records in this record shop and came across the album. And she thought from the cover work of the album that it reminded her of the Virgin Suicides. She started listening to it, listened to it while she was writing. And it was a big inspiration, like I said, because of that dreaming quality. So she reached that out to is them to do the score. Insane. It is the most Sophia Coppola That's story I could possibly she lives in a Polaroid. Um, so not only is there obviously a specific score for the Virgin Suicides, the soundtrack also includes a lot of different artists uh, from the 70s. What I like, once again, because she's trying to avoid the feeling of this being a period piece, I think, in a way. You're not, uh, you know, it could very easily lean cheesy, a movie mm-hmm. being set in the 70s, yeah. I think, yeah. um, especially with, with the music. So the soundtrack is rounded out by music by like Todd Rundgren, Al Green is in there, Styx, Hart, Gilbert O'Sullivan, in particular who I love Gilbert O'Sullivan is an Irish songwriter I'm very nostalgic for him because my parents would have him on in the car but he's like you know and um, it's 70s music that you probably would have heard in the background on the radio you know there's nothing particularly I don't think time stamping about it yeah there's no like disco which I'm sorry but if you play a bit of disco or whatever I'm like right I'm in the 70s like this is it yeah Yeah, it's like this kind of soft folk kind of grunge and it does feel like the suburbs yeah it doesn't feel like you know like we're going back in time in a Doctor Who episode to a very typical (laughs) 70s scene it feels like what it probably felt like you know there at the time um, which I think is fantastic and it feels like that memory Um, I read a great article on the music in the Virgin Suicides Uh, it's on it's on MUBI the MUBI website actually it's by Claire Norelli and I think that this quote really sums up like Ayer's score and how it situates that film in memory. Ayer's impressionistic music is metaphysical, aligned with the heavens. Through its spacious soaring, almost hymnal synth harmonies, pulsating rhythms and bittersweet melodies, their score conveys musically the translucence of memory and invests the ethereal spectres of the Lisbon girls on screen with an added otherworldliness. Nice. Do you ever like read other people and be like, God, you're so uh, smart. Yeah. <laughs> Me, I say this to you every episode. But Whenever I, you say words, I'm like, that's really smart. Yeah. <laughs> but I was trying to like, because I was thinking, I was like, yeah, the music really makes me feel 
something, definitely something. I couldn't yeah. like, you know, and then you read other people, you're like, wow, yeah, that's it. That's what's making me. Yeah. Hymnal synth harmonies. <laughs> that's it. For sure. Um, yeah, so I just love the use of the music and they have that beautiful scene as well of the boys communicating to them. Yes. Through music on the phone and kind of passing the phone back and forth. And I have to and, say, that is such a teenage romantic yeah. thing. Like, because again, it is the 70s that you'd do that now. You'd Like, I used to get like, you know, like your friends would do like a little CD of like burn CD of like all these different songs like a mixtape right yeah. now I'm sure you just send someone a playlist on Spotify I don't know what the kids are doing um, it's not romantic to do that. <laughs> it's not romantic <laughs> get a boom box on this side my gaff that's what I want but the lads are playing songs over the phone over the yeah. old dial phone and um, it is it's really that's like the most teenagery about yeah. it and I think actually you're so right about what was said earlier which was like if that happened in when you were growing up but if that happened when you were growing up in your estate or wherever you live and you also were the person who used to play songs down the phone to someone else are you joking me of course I'd never, get, never over get over it I'd never get over it I'd never get over it I'd set up a podcast series trying to figure out what happened do you know what I mean like that's what, like, that's what would happen now by the way that'd be the the, the so modern day true. version of suicide is a bunch of dudes setting up a podcast being like whatever happened to the Lisbon girls <laughs> living with the Lisbons and it'd be like <laughs> And it'd be like them like interviewing the old school psychologist. Oh my god. Living with the Lisbons. Stop. And it'd be them trying to get an interview with Mrs. Lisbon. Like oh my that's god. what it'd be like. And then yeah. the boys off yeah, you know, off mic would be like, I hope eighty twenty four picked this up. <laughs> Guys, I think we can really get a series out of this. Yeah. That's devastating. Yeah. Um so another part of I think that like goes into making this film feel so visceral like yeah. at there's points in this film I feel like I can smell those girls yeah you know especially when they're trapped in the house and it's very it's it's commented on a lot in the book that like the smell of like rot. rotting cheese yeah like yeah but it is rot you know mm. and I think that when I was kind of reading through and thinking about like the themes of the book and how they're communicated in the film a big theme two big themes struck me reading and rewatching is obviously that that theme of girlhood and like particularly female adolescence, mm. which is a bit messier than male adolescence, oh, isn't yeah. it? Because like girls get their periods yeah. and like, you know, they start to grow in very yeah. visible places. There's the idea of female adolescence is almost monstrous in a way because it's about something, you know, we always hear the term like erupting. <laughs> There's something erupting out of this previous, like, previously well, childlike body. Well, like even actually on that point, the, the party they have, you know, the, yeah. the chaperone party they're allowed to have to make Cecilia feel better. In the film, physically, the boys are coming in and you know they're the same age as the girls and they look like 10 years younger. The yes. boys look like children and the girls are just are becoming women. women. Like, they yeah, women. it is. And you, I remember those parties where you would just be like, all oh, the boys would be like, oh, no, the voices are going up and down like a roller coaster. And the girls are just standing there full on being like, we have breasts now. Like, it's so weird. It's so weird. And that's the thing. It's so much more messy. Like, what's going on with the girls is so, the ba- so are just wake up one day with an Adam's apple that's it the girls are totally yeah it's just a wholly different thing yeah Yeah, and it just feels like it's almost like life trying to escape its bounds and I really love and something that's always commented on about the virgin suicides is the set design of that house and of the girls space in particular so there's we see a lot the bathroom and the bedrooms the first time we see the bathroom is during the scene where we see that Cecilia has cut her wrists but before we see that, we get kind of like a, a zoom in on 
the shelf that has like it's got a beautiful like antique fan on it it's got endless perfume bottles mm. it's got tampons pads you know and yeah. then I think that it has randomly a Virgin Mary statue mm. it had and it's just crowded with stuff and everything's just packed in there the bathroom itself is very steamy it's kind of got this yeah. blue wash and you, like we've been talking about this very visceral feel that you could reach your hand in and be in that bathroom and then similarly with the rooms the bedrooms yeah. that are just a mess of like zodiac hanging signs you know like they're playing cards a Ouija board a crucifix with a bra on it you know it's just like it is it's a teenager's bedroom (laughs) so no one knows a teenager's bedroom better than Sophia Coppola (laughs) no one on this planet um and at the same time as we have that theme of that girlhood femininity trying to escape the Lisbon house trying to outgrow that like straight lined boxy grey house they're Mm -hmm. trying to burst out of it Outside the house, we have that very tidy suburb that's been infected by that. Yeah, the tree thing. Algae, yeah, you know, and you so have the fact the, they have to keep the, in the story. You have to keep break, uh, sorry, uh, chopping down trees because there's been some sort of like um, infestation throughout the trees, trees, and it's going to like infect all of them. So they have to start like preempting it. What what does that mean? Like I'm like, what yeah, does that mean? So there's a, in the book in particular, there's like a lot of references to how the environment is impacting this suburb in Detroit, mm-hmm. right? So you have the Dutch elm disease is spreading from tree to tree. You have the the fish flies yeah. that are coating all of the wind. Like they're born, yeah. they live for a day, they die, and they coat the windows of all the like cars and the houses in the neighborhood. And then you have toxins from a, from a nearby lake that's been polluted. So you have this feeling of just like there's a real theme in in both the, the book and the film of this feral toxicity spreading yeah, through yeah. this neighbourhood. And I think that the girlhood that's trapped in this house, that's trying to grow and escape this like terribly yeah. harsh, yeah. suffocating house is mirrored by this like environment outside that's trying to rebel against the suburb that's been planted there and it's got all these straight lines and orderly it's the American dream trying to force itself onto this world that doesn't want it almost you know so it's yeah. life essentially you know it's yeah. life in the house and it's life outside the house trying to fight against uh, society that's telling it that it has to be a certain thing you know what I'm going to say. <laughs> Leave you're so smart. So. You're so smart. <laughs> that is an unbelievable, like, because I was wondering, you know, when you're, again, I just don't know, again, if I, some of the, I don't know if just things passed me by in the film and the book that kind of left me a bit frustrated. I just, yeah. I don't know if I, like, I, I watched it through decent enough eyes, okay? <laughs> But that makes so much more sense to me because yeah. I found the tree thing out of nowhere. You know, when they come out after Cecilia has passed and they come out and they're protecting the tree and they're in the... I was like, I don't know what this means. Like, yeah. I was kind of like, oh, let's <laughs> move it along, ladies. Listen, the tree's not coming back, right? <laughs> Sometimes I'm, I'm, I'm the practical worker who's like, guys, I, I'm on the clock here. I need to put down the tree. You know what I mean? So, yeah, so those are the... the that's what struck me anyway yeah. about the, the book and the novel. And in the in the movie, we obviously see then the debutante party. So the yeah. girls now have passed and there has been this pollution from the lake and oh, the whole gosh. town smells and everything's terrible. And debutantes across the suburb are, are devastated. devastated that they have to come out in a year that will always be remembered for its smell. So the guys, that are our team of teenage yeah. boys go to a debutante party where the theme is intoxication and they have to wear gas masks. The There's like a haze of green that yeah. they're like moving through throughout and you can really feel, because another big theme 
in in the book with that kind of girlhood toxicity hand in hand is the idea of contamination you know and that the the demise of the neighbourhood can be traced back to the death of the Lisbon yeah. girls and that the girls have killed themselves and now, you know, all hell has broken loose. You know, they've... Yeah. And uh, they also actually at one point blame Cecilia because it yeah. was like, what they say, something about with her, her first death, it sort of put something into the air and affected yes. the rest of the girls. Yeah. Exactly. There's something very much about that party and I absolutely hated it. I hated it in the film, hated it in the book. As in like, just, it was so gross. But like, there's something about that party where I was like, God, that's such a metaphor for climate change where we're all having a party in the middle of like the ice caps melting. Exactly. <laughs> and like, it, there's just something about it which is so grim, which is, and also what I found so interesting that, that that's going on about that party also linked to it is how much the boys could never forget what happened, right? But the adults immediately wanted yes. to forget what happened. So the adults immediately were like, we're over this. Like we're yeah. back to our cocktails. We're back to our tennis matches. We're back to... And there is something where it's like, what is it about young people and children where they're like, I want to, we have to talk about this. And adults are like, we need to never discuss yeah. this. I want to throw a party with a gas mask. <laughs> <laughs> like what you know what I mean it's just that thing of like when you're younger teenagers again actually the one thing that can be so frustrating with them is they will not let go of something yeah it's like Greta Thunberg 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 Greta Thunberg with the environment that's why I think so many adults can get annoyed at her because we're like hey we're having a party here and she's like yo there's something wrong with the planet you know what I mean and like, we're all gonna be dead soon yeah and there's something about teenagers that they don't let go of those things they're almost more pure in that way where they're just like there's something wrong and no one wants to talk about it absolutely yeah. um, we also have that in that scene it's in the book and the movie of of that man at that party because they're all getting drunk and there is this kind of feeling of end of the world isn't yeah. there like we're partying as the world ends exactly like you say and a man throws himself into the pool and says I'm a teenager I have problems nobody understands me so there is that sense of God, I want to punch that guy in the face <laughs> those adults have rapidly moved on and, and for me they're they're the American dream that they yeah. think they're doing the right thing they think that this wealth will save them they yeah. think that that order that they're imposing on the environment of these like big blocky houses and you know they're cutting down all the trees to make it look cleaner and make it look better and that's going to save us and the teenagers know it won't yeah um so the two people who are responsible for kind of you know crafting that that vibe for want of a better word that atmosphere first I want to talk about the set design by Jasna Stefanovic responsible obviously for those fabulous bedroom sets that we see even just like the houses of the neighbours as we go neighbour to neighbour and we can see you know they're doing the interviews yeah. and everything absolutely gorgeous and then cinematographer Ed Lachman um, who was responsible for that haziness you yes. know that we're talking yeah, about yeah. And it's that, like, like an aura like, like if someone like was to be like you know like one of those aura pictures that's exactly what it feels like when you're watching this film yeah absolutely um so yeah, that's what I, I just had. wanted. I wanted to talk really quickly. <laughs> I saw a uh, reunion video of again. We'll put it in the show notes um, of the cast, a twenty year reunion, right? That was on. I can't remember. It was anyway. The, the, it was during lockdown, and they did like a sort of like resume reunion. And um, first of all, like Kirsten Dunst and Sofia Coppola, I will say it is so nice to have a female director and a female a- or, or an actor who now have their own, you know, like that thing of like Scorsese and yes. DiCaprio. Yeah, they, they have their own together. Their partnership. And it's like, oh, we have a new Scorsese DiCaprio film and it's like an event and it's good. Like, but to have, be like, oh, Coppola and Kirsten Dunst again. Like, I'm like, it's so lovely to be like, yeah. this was their first. This is where they started off. And I know that like Kirsten Dunst talked about how, 
she was always told she needed to get her teeth fixed and all this sort of stuff. And Sofia Coppola in this film was particularly like, no, no I want, don't, yeah. don't do it. This, you look gorgeous the way you are. And she said it gave me such confidence because it just had to be a woman to turn around and be like, no, don't, don't change a thing. You yeah. know what I mean? Um, and actually imagine what makes me so sad now, even if you were to make a teenage film now, everyone kind of looks the same. Yeah, they all have veneers. Everyone has thing. veneers. Yeah. Everyone has these big white teeth. And I think that now when I look back at this one, the reason why it actually does feel like a memory is because they look like teenagers. They aren't Absolutely. actually particularly perfect looking. They're beautiful girls, do yeah. so not get me wrong, but the teenage boys look like teenage boys. The teenage girls the teenage, look like teenage girls. Because the teenage boys are gawky. They're <laughs> yeah, small. Yeah, exactly. They, they look like children. They, they don't look even, like yeah, children. Um, but what I loved in the cast talking about it first of all you had the actress who plays Mary I think you yeah. know in the scene where they're like twirling and they're in the dance she was like oh this is my favourite scene but she's like I made fun of so much because the line she goes I'm having a great time Aww. and she twirled around and she was like people literally quote that to me all the time Aww. I'm paraphrasing her one of my favourite bits is that you know they they all talked about how relaxed of a set it was and you can kind of get that vibe from watching the film it was actually Josh Hartnett who plays Trip Fontaine oh, all around ride. Yeah. And he was like, um, in this chat, he said like, you know, I was a very young actor and basically was like, oh, like, you know, I have to be so, you know, um, strict and I'm going yeah. up and I'm, ser- I'm a serious actor. And he said he got up there and he's like, everyone's just really relaxed and kind of having a good time and whatever. And he was like, you know, actually it made me just be like, oh, this kind of works, you know. Yeah. Then he said, um, what was so funny was <laughs> all the girls were talking about just happy times they kind of had in the hotel and dinners together. And he was like, I just remember James Woods just giving me loads of advice. <laughs> oh, oh. I just remember sitting there and being like, okay. <laughs> I think I'm okay, James. <laughs> Thanks so much. And then Curtis and Dunn's even talking about the car scene with him and being like every yeah. time I had to jump him his wig would come off and it was just really awkward. At one point, a wig. Yeah, oh and then at one point I bit him. And I'm like, there's something awkward even about them making it because yeah. they're awkward teens. They and are I was like, teens. That encapsulates the realness of everything because they were like that scene, um, one of the actresses, I think the girl who plays Mary again, said uh, the scene where they're at the party, she was like, you know, the chaperone party. When the boys first come in, it's that real awkward thing where the girls and boys are like, oh, hi, Separate. you know, yeah. all this. She said, that was almost too real because it's exactly what it was like for us at the time. <laughs> and I'm like, there you go. Yeah. That's the authenticity that I feel like is missing from so many films totally. where people are just like now shit hot. <laughs> and like, I'm like, but like teens aren't like that when they're around I each know. other. They can't just stand like, it. Generally bring back normal looking actors, please. Please. Like, yeah, please. Or I want to see more rom-coms about like 35 year olds. Please. Yes, please. Sorry. Please. But I want another When Harry Met Sally, not another To All The Boys I've Loved Before. Uh, I know, I know. And then one last thing I want to say about the film it is a lot funnier than the book and now Do you think? or I think the book is actually quite funny as well yeah. there were so many bits in the book where I was like there's a bit where the boys are talking one boy's I think talking about how he got off with looks and he was talking about how girls <laughs> he was like oh yeah like she's going through the change or whatever like and they bleed through their tits <laughs> But, but that is, is the calibre yeah, of sex education, education in the 70s and, then and you ha- currently. <laughs> and in Ireland, always. Um, but then there was such a great, funny, funny scene. And that's what I think about the book. Like, although obviously there's so many ter- like horrendous things, the film isn't a book that, isn't a film that I'm like, oh, that was just like, I'd never watch that again in the same way of like just yeah. a tragedy, tragedy. There's a bit where the boys are spying on Lux having sex on the roof with mm-hmm. someone and they were like, oh, I got to watch it, got to watch it. And before it, one guy can even get his eye off it, it's finished. And then he went, well, that was quick. <laughs> and I think that's something so funny that every woman watching was like, exactly. Yes. 
And then it just cuts to the scene of like Lux sitting by herself smoking on the roof looking yeah. dissatisfied. <laughs> just really great filmmaking and it's like one of the it's such it's such a dark in so many ways that that is what makes it so funny and like it's so gross but not in a teen gross out way like it's gross in the way that teenagers are gross you know they all the the guys are stealing from the girls and they want the most intimate things that they can and they talk a lot about stealing lipsticks and like putting the lipsticks on each other just to feel kind of close to them and like it's uh, yeah and that is what being a teenager is like you are a little goblin weirdo when you're a teenager especially when you're a horny teenager you're a little goblin weirdo and those boys are little goblin weirdos and they'll never fucking get over it (laughs) (laughs) that's what like that should be a new you know like to all the boys I've loved to all the goblin weirdos out there (laughs) Um, okay, will I do a quick tagline, please? Now, my I couldn't really find a tagline, so I, I'd be surprised if it had a tagline. Yeah, <laughs> but what I do sometimes, if if there isn't like an official tagline, you kind of take one of the quotes that come up that's the biggest one, like yeah. say on the IMDb. So the tagline I'm going with is: "It's nine o'clock on a Saturday. Do you know where your children are?" Oh God! <laughs> right. So my tagline is: "It's nine o'clock on a Saturday. Do you know you need to actually know who your children are?" Oh my God, Grace, that's amazing. <laughs> That's fantastic. That is. Thank uh... you. Thank you. <laughs> 